Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another presentation about the uh, financial crisis. But I can see from the attendance that there remains quite an appetite uh, for uh, discussing <coughs> what is going on in this evolving tragedy uh, in financial markets and indeed now in the real economy. And we are delighted this afternoon that we've got Professor Schiller with us. Um, I'm not going to read out his CV because actually most of it's on the screen or at least uh, where he is now. Uh, but of course he is at Yale and uh, has published just recently a fascinating book on the subprime crisis which follows his earlier work on irrational exuberance um, and on new forms of instruments to manage risks, which was his previous work, which generated a huge amount of interest uh, in the US and indeed uh, over here. He's, had, he's been extraordinarily fertile in dreaming up uh, new types of instrument and new types of transaction in financial markets, which might make financial markets better match the risks which individuals face in their own lives. I won't try, although I have read the book actually, as we were just discussing, I, but I, um, it's one of the most irritating things I know when I'm a speaker myself, if you stand up to speak and the person introducing you then neatly summarizes uh, what you were about to say. So I won't say any more and just uh, <laughs> hand over to you. Thanks. Thank you, Howard. Uh, I remember that I gave a talk in this very room for another book I wrote in 2000 called Irrational Exuberance. Uh, at that time, the market was the stock market was uh, at a peak. Uh, so now it is um, eight years later, and I think we're still in the same unwinding of that same cycle. And the market is now down and. Well, the U.S. market is now down 54% in real terms. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm continuing that talk. If anyone was here the last time, let me know. <laughs> uh, so I, I start with a disclaimer. Uh, <laughs> this is the only slide that I didn't write. Uh, my lawyers wrote that. That's because I'm involved in issuing securities. So there's an important lesson here, which is always read the prospectus before you invest. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> it also says don't trust anything I say. But uh, <laughs> uh, Here's my argument that um, the book that uh, I just came out, this book Subprime Solution came out in August uh, and it uh, unfortunately is somewhat dated because events have been moving very fast. But I think the basic uh, message of the book is still valid. And it's really about the ultimate causes of this international financial crisis and about what we, uh, what we should be doing about it. Uh, I was, uh, one of the things that happened since the book came out was there was a G20 nations meeting in Washington earlier this month. Uh, and they issued a statement uh, with their explanation of the crisis, a weak underwriting standards, unsound risk management practices, increasingly complex and opaque financial products and consequent excessive leverage or debt. Uh, well, I don't disagree with them, but I think that we have to think further about the more 
ultimate causes. These are proximate causes, uh, but they're not the ultimate causes. Uh, and I think we have to think widely about sources of, uh, of market movements. Uh, I'm an advocate of behavioral finance, which is psychology and other social sciences applied to finance. And I think that uh, we shouldn't stop with the list that the G20 people gave. Uh, uh, one thing that is really striking about this crisis is how poorly predicted it was. Uh, and some of the same people that we're putting in charge to fix it are people who didn't have a clue that it was happening. Uh, I particularly note uh, Tim Geithner, uh, who was a uh, president. Well, I know him well because I was on uh, advisory committee to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York when he came in as president. Uh, and at that time, I was always advising the president of the New York Fed that we're in a bubble. Um, but I felt like maybe I wasn't so uh, loved for this. Uh, like it was my thing to keep talking about the bubble. Uh, and before long, he, uh, I got a call saying that he was bringing in his own people and I wouldn't be needed anymore. <laughs> so I went back and looked recently at all of his speeches, and it's really true he had no idea it was coming. Uh, but right now he's Henry Paulson's right-hand man, and, is, uh, in and he will be in charge of fixing this situation. So um, uh, I'm trying to think about what happened and why. Um, well, it seemed like I was the guy who kept bringing it up, but I felt kind of um, embarrassed to bring this up because Theories that were in a bubble that might burst sound kind of flaky or something. It's not, it's not uh, um, undignified or something about it made it hard to talk about. Uh, it seemed like we had reached a strange conventional wisdom that the markets were secure, that our banks were resilient, uh, and that was Geithner's favorite word. He used it a lot at the time. Um, but in fact, I think it was some kind of um, psychological contagion that produced this event. And the reason why there was established feeling that it uh, couldn't be happening was something we call groupthink. Psychologists, social psychologists, talk. there's many reasons why groups of people, especially politically ambitious people, may uh, arrive at uh, a wrong decision or may not pay any attention to uh, risks that are are very real. So I'm th what I was trying to do in this book is to think about what we should do about the crisis, but trying to do that in full knowledge of what caused the crisis. Um, I actually do believe that financial markets serve us very well and that we have to make them work even better. And so what I advocate in the book is what I call democratizing financial markets, make them work for the people better. Uh, and that is, I think, the important thing we have to try to advance. We have to use this crisis as an opportunity to improve our markets. But let me start by uh, talking just about my view of what happened. Uh, and uh, I, I would uh, say that, first of all, this is, a, this is the epigraph of my book, uh, and it's uh, written by John Maynard Keynes in 1919. Though, first of all, I think the most important thing to get through in this crisis is that we have a sense of civil society emerging or continuing. That is, that we treat everyone fairly uh, and that uh, we take care of everyone. Uh, I know uh, that it's a financial mess that we're in. Uh, 
this, uh, this quote from Keynes came, uh, if you remember, he was uh, uh, involved in negotiating what would be done at the end of World War I. Uh, and he wrote a book uh, called The Economic Con Consequences of the Peace, uh, arguing that uh, the Allies had made very heavy demands for reparations from Germany and that it would only create, first of all, Germany would be unable to pay the reparations and it would only create a sense of serious injustice. Uh, and that it would ultimately, I'm quoting, here's what he said, grow into a conflagration. Uh, now, he's really predicting World War II at the time, in 1919. Uh, he was listened to, but not, uh, not really heard. But I, I don't mean to make, exaggerate, but I do think that the effects of this crisis are, in terms of our general sense of uh, confidence and trust in each other, are the most important things. So uh, we have to be very careful about how we deal with this. Uh, the bubble, the, the crisis is really caused, I think, by people and not by authorities, ultimately. And it's caused by our sense of overconfidence that developed. I wanted to start by showing um, the uh, stock market. This is the U.S. stock market. Uh, and uh, I believe strongly that we have to put things in a long perspective. So I have it shown from 1871 until last uh, two days ago. <laughs> uh, the point of this, the blue line, is the inflation-corrected Standard & Poor Composite Stock Price Index for the U.S. Um, and the point that I'm trying to make with this graph is how remarkable the last uh, 10, 12 years have been in history. Uh, you can see, if you can hear me, I don't have a pointer, but this is, can you hear me here? This is the biggest bubble except in U.S. history, except for this one. Now, you have to understand that this is scaled down. This is 19, everything was smaller, but percentage-wise, stock market soared till 1929, and it dropped 80% in real terms. This time, it soared similarly, and it, it's now down 54%, not as much. Similar phenomenon. If you look at the chart, when else did we have an event like that? Never, in 100 and almost 140 years. So. Uh, it's hard for economists to understand such an event, especially for economists who only use the last 20 years of data uh, to analyze. Uh, we need to think in a long historical perspective. Both of these events are similar, I believe, in that the 1920s and the 1990s were euphoric periods when people got exaggerated expectations. That means bubble. Uh, and I'll come back to more about that. But this is, when I wrote Irrational Exuberance, it came out, my book came out exactly there. I was, I timed it perfectly. Uh, not that I knew that was going to happen like that, but I had a sense. Um, uh, it, it, I don't think these things are completely unforecastable, uh, although I say the market is hard to predict. Uh, this is the price earn, the blue line is the price earnings ratio for the S&P Composite Index back to 1881. Uh, and you can see that there's really only two extraordinary events. 
in all this history. There's 1929 and 2000. It got up to 46 at the peak. It's come down, as of a couple days ago, it was down to 12.7. Okay. The, the price-earnings ratio is a measure of price relative to some measure of fundamental value. I'm using the Graham and Dodd price-earnings ratio, which is a 10-year average of, of uh, earnings. So um, it seems like people just moved the pricing of the market way up uh, in 2000 and corrected it way down. So there's a cycle here that extends all the way from 1982 to the present. It's really uh, a long, long cycle uh, that represents, I think, some change in our patterns of thinking. Some people attribute this whole event to long-term interest rates. I have the, the gray line is the 10-year uh, uh, long-term bond rate. And uh, just before 2000, Alan Greenspan uh, gave a famous talk in which he said, he showed data since around 1960 and said, uh, look at the, um, <laughs> the negative relation between interest rates and the stock market. And he said, well, that accords with economic theory. When interest rates are high, stock prices are low. But you notice that it only fits for that period. This is the classic mistake that econometricians make. And the best way to refute some amazing claim from econometric analysis is just to wait. And then you find that it disappears with subsequent data. Um, that's, well, I, I'm uh, oversimplifying uh, there, but I think that often happens. Uh, so I think that what happened in these two episodes was both periods of great investor optimism uh, generated as part of a bubble that corrected down. And so the point I'm trying to make is that people say the Great Depression, they, a lot of people are asking, are we in a Great Depression? In fact, I went through searching on the web for prime ministers or presidents who say that we may be in a Great Depression. And virtually all of them have said that. I mean, it's very common now. Uh, it's no longer the D word. Everyone is talking about it. Well, I, I think that's because although our unemployment is nowhere near that of the Great Depression, the, um, there's a lot of similarities, and I'm going to point out some more. Um, I wanted to compare the, uh, the, the Great Depression was a worldwide event. Uh, so is uh, recent events. This is the, I wanted to compare the FTSE 100 with the uh, S&P 500. Uh, and th this really makes the point, when I talk about the United States uh, it's just the same in the United Kingdom. Uh, don't, those two lines, the stock market in the two countries, they fit pretty well, don't they? And in fact, the decline from the peak, it was a peak in 2000 for both countries. Uh, the UK market is down 53% from the peak in real terms, whereas the US market is down 54% from the peak. Uh, why are the countries so similar? Well, one thought might be, well, maybe their central banks are similar. People like to attribute everything that happens to the governor of their central banks and blame everything on that person. Uh, actually, I'm an old friend of Mervyn King, so I'm not... <laughs> maybe I'm but I, I think it's really wrong to attribute all these problems to, uh, to those people. That's over-focusing, I think. Uh, this shows the real um, um, base rate for the two countries. The blue line is the federal funds rate, which is the policy interest rate that the U.S. Federal Reserve used, and I've corrected it for inflation. Uh, and uh, 
the uh, red line is the uh, base rate for the Bank of England uh, uh, over the same period, and again corrected for inflation. Uh, and I would say there's not much relation between the two countries' policies. Maybe there's a downtrend in both countries. Uh, notably, uh, a lot of people like to blame the U.S. housing bubble on the Fed. So the Fed has negative real interest rates for the whole period of the rapid price increase. But you don't see that uh, in the UK. Uh, it, it looks like under Greenspan and Bernanke, we've had big, much bigger swings in, uh, federal, in, the, in interest rates than in the UK. So I don't think that, I think the similarities between the US and the UK have much more uh, to do with the fact that they're in the same market general marketplace. We trade so much with each other, but also that we're thinking the same. We have the same, much the same culture. Um, and this is volatility in the S&P 500 from 1928 to 2008. So what I did is I took the standard deviation of the percentage changes in stock prices for the preceding 30 day. And I did that for every day uh, from February 6, 1928 until October 29, 2008. So it's a measure of how much the stock market moves from day to day. Now, the really interesting thing is the peak here. Uh, it's, got, it's really shot up lately. And if you look at the whole history of the market, there's two other episodes. This is 1987, uh, and the other one is 1929. Uh, so there's been three periods of exceptionally high volatility. Um, let me first discuss this one, because this one stands out as very isolated. There was a one-day drop in the stock market in the U.S. on October 19, 1987, and the Standard & Poor Composite Index fell 20.5% in one day. Uh, and so. Um, there was a little talk, maybe about a depression or that, because they noticed this. It was the biggest stock market drop ever. And again, it also occurred, and similar drops occurred in all over the world at that time. But nothing happened. It was an isolated event. Uh, I think that the 1987 crash was isolated because it didn't have all the associated things we're having now. There weren't bank failures. There wasn't drop in confidence. There wasn't much talk of a depression. Uh, most people thought, it didn't mean anything. It was all blamed on portfolio insurance, which is a, a dynamic trading strategy. But if you look back here, 1929, it was different. Well, especially afterwards. There was this long period of volatility going for 10 years in the market. Uh, we have a, a new, in the U.S., we have a new chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. Her name is Christina Romer. Uh, and uh, she wrote a famous paper about reactions to the 1929 crash. I think it's an interesting sign that our government is putting in experts on the Great Depression <laughs> as uh, important uh, new figures. But according to uh, Christina, the uh, market forca forecast reacted very strongly to the 1929 bust, and there was a lot of worries at that time. And that led to volatility, which lasted for a, a long time. So how would we forecast volatility? at this point moving forward. We could try to use a GARCH or ARCH model or one of the econometric models, but it seems to me too much like a regime change situation. Uh, so I wouldn't trust those forecasts. 
seems to me that uh, we are in a regime change that looks a lot like the one in the Great Depression. Uh, and so maybe we're in for a long period of volatility here. Um, this is comp consumer confidence in the U.S. It's dropped um, uh, to record lows recently. The, the conference board only collects data since 1967. But casually, I think that confidence has not been this low since uh, the Great Depression. This is the U.S. three-month Treasury bill rate, uh, monthly and then daily, from 1920 to 2008. Uh, and uh, it's an interesting figure, but I'd like to point out, you notice it hits zero right here. Uh, when did it do that before? Here. That's the only other time, and that was in the Great Depression. Uh, recently, there have been articles in uh, newspapers saying that interest rates actually became negative briefly, just a tiny bit negative. And this is a puzzle, because we were taught that nominal interest rates can never go negative because someone would just hold cash. You would never lend out your money at a negative rate. But it can happen for special reasons. So I thought, let me go back and look. And I found, by searching, I found the same newspaper articles from 1938 saying, you thought interest rates could never be negative. Lo and behold, they can be negative. What does it mean? It means that confidence in all other risky assets is, has dropped so far that people are willing to buy treasury. There's so much value safety that they're willing to buy treasury bills even at a negative interest rate. Uh, this is the inflation rate in the United States from 1913 when the CPI, Consumer Price Index, was created until last month. Uh, and you note October 2008, I've indicated there, we had minus 1% in one month. When did that last happen? During the Depression in April 1938. Uh, the, the current situation is also very um, international. I wanted to show one example. There's many countries that have a similar price behavior. This is the Shanghai Composite Stock Price Index. It's a renminbi index, but I've corrected it for Chinese inflation. And it shows the Chinese stock market from 2000 until uh, just uh, last month. Uh, and isn't that remarkable what's been happening in China? The, uh, the stock prices were declining slightly in real terms for a, a better part of a decade. And then they suddenly went up fivefold. And then they came all the way back down. Suddenly, uh, this is a kind of pattern that we see surprisingly frequently. Uh, now, you might say, why did it do this? Is it because of the miracle of the Chinese economy? Well, but the Chinese economy was going through a miracle this whole time. Uh, I think, again, it's some kind of social contagion. I'm not able to explain the Chinese market. But, uh, and, and the decline recently must have something to do with the change in uh, attitudes associated with the current crisis. Uh, so that's the stock market. I wanted to talk about the housing market. Uh, when I published the second edition of my book, Irrational Exuberance, in 2005, I wanted to show the same kind of charts I just showed you, but for the housing market, because I was thinking that the housing bubble was now the main concern. So I asked for a long housing, I asked all the experts I could find, real estate experts, for uh, where do I get a housing price index for 100 years? And to my surprise, I was told there is none, and not for the US or for any other country, apparently. Um, and I thought, that's odd. Don't we care about getting perspective on our real estate? I thought people were fascinated by real estate. 
There's a section in the newspaper, right? You have the same thing. There's TV shows about real estate. How can it be that no one has ever constructed a, a long prize series? So I did. I created my own from the book. It's based by splicing together other people's indices mostly. And that's the blue line. And what it is, is um, the price of an unchanging house. Uh, uh, you know, you're, you, you have what, the Halifax and the Nationwide. They don't go back, unless they've extended it back since, I don't know. They don't go back more than a, a few decades. When I took it back 100 years like this, I found that the current boom is unprecedented. Uh, and so it, had, it shot up almost double. And when, I, when I wrote the book, we were right about here. Uh, in 2005. And it continued to go up and it came sharply down. None of this can be explained by the, base, the most common fundamentals. The green line is uh, building costs, the pink line is population, and the uh, orange line is interest rates. Uh, none of those really made any spectacular moves. I should have added another one, which is rents. Uh, I can't take it back to 1890, but at least um, uh, since um, in recent decades, rents have been quite smooth and nearly constant in real terms. So it's not a demand for housing change. I think it was a speculative demand. Uh, and it's hard to explain. These are psychological phenomena. It had something to do with the change in mindset that developed during the stock market bubble. And uh, it may have been, I think there's some evidence for this, a, a, a echo bubble for the stock market. Nothing is so simple as that. but. Um, uh, one thing we know is that there's been a tremendous uh, change in the interest in buying homes. This is in the U.S., the National Association of Home Builders, Home uh, Traffic of Prospective Buyers Index, and it's suddenly collapsed to a record low. Um, this is a, a number of different cities in the U.S. What, what's striking is that all the cities are moving the same way. What I think has happened this time uh, and over much of the world. People have gotten the idea, they got the idea sometime in the 2000s, that housing is just this wonderful investment that will make you rich. <laughs> and it uh, doesn't matter where you buy a house, anywhere. They used to think that you had to buy a house in central London or New York or uh, Las Vegas, uh, someplace that's uh, unusual. But now it's everywhere. It's just uh, the idea. I think it has something to do with our uh, in fear of development, that um, India and China are growing rapidly and uh, there's so much demand for everything that we're running out of everything. Uh, it also uh, affects all price tiers. This is low, middle, and high-priced homes. These, by the way, are the Standard & Poor Case-Shiller indexes that I developed with Carl Case and are now being published by Standard & Poor's. Uh, this is for uh, Miami. It's really remarkable what Miami went through. It looks like Shanghai, doesn't it? Prices were constant. Nothing happened in Miami, and then they suddenly shot up uh, in, in the early 2000s, especially in the low-priced home. I think that has to do with the subprime um, effect, the subprime loans. And finally, London and Boston. Uh, isn't it remarkable how similar, I showed you how similar the stock markets are. Now I'm showing you how similar the housing markets are. Uh, they both went up in the 80s. They both came down in the uh, 90s. They both were kind of languid in the uh, late 90s. Then they both started to take off, uh, and then they both corrected down. Uh, Boston is looking tamer than London. But um, the, uh, I don't know if people want to, this is all inflation corrected. In this last boom, 
London prices more than doubled, and they came all the way back down after the boom. And now they, this time they went up, uh, looks like they tripled. Uh, and what are they going to do? I, <laughs> um, I'm not in the business of forecasting London home prices, but uh, this is Japan home prices, actually real urban land prices for six cities from 1970 to 2007-4. And something is very anomalous about this picture, wouldn't you say? This was the period, I think, when Japanese uh, nationalism reigned most strong, when their auto companies were taking over the world, when their uh, banks were the number one banks in the world. They had a sense of, um, and uh, Japan seemed invincible. Uh, it, for the next 15 years after the peak, Japanese land prices fell every year. Um, so I think I've, I'm reading bubble again. So uh, in summary, I think that we've had remarkable bubbles recently. Bubbles are caught. Something has to start it. There has to be some precipitating factor. But the thing that really gets them going is amplification. And I think it's a social epidemic. It's like a disease epidemic. It's excitement spreads mouth, word, mouth to word, word from one person to another through the word of mouth. Uh, and it has feedback. Price increases generate excitement. And it brings more investors in. And that uh, generates more price increases. It also in expands on the justification. New era theories start developing. Some, I, some, the price increases are attributed to something, like the internet uh, for the stock market. Uh, uh, or, uh, and so those stories begin to take on uh, significance because people judge them based on their uh, consonance with the price movements. And psychological factors are always present. It's really, a, it's emotional. The decision to make these deci uh, purchases uh, is, is made out of envy or uh, stimulation seeking and other uh, factors that enter in that psychologists talk about. So what do we do about this crisis? You understand now, I, if, if you uh, assume that I have it right that the uh, crisis is caused by the bursting of bubbles, what do we do? Well, it seems like countries of the world are settling in on Keynesian stimulus uh, and uh, the uh, uh, John Maynard Keynes uh, had a theory that uh, one should do deficit spending. So U.S. Congress uh, recently has been considering a 60 to 100 billion package. Obama has been proposing a package more aggressive. It's not clear what it will be. It might be 700 billion or 1.2 trillion. Uh, he wants to get the job done by stimulating and building uh, infrastructure investments with all this money. In the U.K., uh, Alistair Darling has unveiled a, a $20 billion stimulus package, uh, which will be financed later by higher tax rates on the wealthy. Uh, other countries, China and Japan and other countries are doing this. Is this going to work? Uh, well, uh, the Keynesian multiplier might say that it would work. Uh, this is the theory that Keynes advanced long ago in 1936. Uh, in my new, I'm writing another book with George Akerlof called Animal Spirits. Uh, which will come out next year. Uh, we think that the Keynesian multiplier was a little too rigid, and we should talk instead more generally about a confidence multiplier. Uh, and ultimately, the outcome depends a lot on how it affects human psychology. Uh, we, it really can't be mechanical. We can't take a mechanical Keynesian multiplier and try to understand the effect. If, if we need some restoring of confidence, some need 
business investment needs some sense of renewed opportunity and trust that has been damaged in the current situation, and it's very difficult to predict. As for the UK proposal to announce simultaneously a tax, uh, a, a, a fiscal expansion that raises the government deficit, but simultaneously to announce that two years later we're going to raise your taxes, that might not work. Uh, if you, uh, there's something called Ricardian equivalence. So David Ricardo, uh, 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 like 150 years ago, said that you might think that this kind of policy wouldn't have its effect because people would figure out that if the government goes into debt, it's going to raise my taxes later, and so they're discouraged from spending by it. But the general answer has been, don't worry, people will never figure it out. But it seems like Darling is doing his best to help them figure it out. And so maybe it won't have this effect. I don't really know. The other thing that people are talking about is systemic risk and something that's really come up in this crisis. And that is, it's not that there's too many derivatives. It's that the derivatives haven't been designed properly. Uh, there's been too much reliance on, on banks and uh, uh, financial institutions. Uh, and now that we're seeing them fail, everyone, everything is clogging up. So one thing that we can do, and this was talked about, even the G20 meeting, this was one thing that came out of that. We should develop clearinghouses and other methods of handling uh, hedging risks that don't involve such systemic risk. I, this was the idea that macro shares is the idea that I've been trying to develop uh, along this line. And so um, my uh, colleagues and I have been issuing securities on the New York Stock Exchange, American Stock Exchange, next it will be New York Stock Exchange, that represent important risks that ought to be hedged, but they have absolutely no counterparty risk. So uh, we issued oil uh, securities, um, and we want these to be user-friendly and available to investors uh, and hedgers so that people will manage risks better. Uh, and uh, our next thing is to create housing shares so that people can manage their home risks better by investing in something that's traded on a stock exchange. We hope to do this at, by the uh, early next year. The problem is that nobody manages these risks. And so this crisis was substantially due to a failure to manage real estate risk. It's been a campaign I've been on for years. I went to Fannie Mae in 2003. This is five years ago. And, and I, I asked to speak to them about their real estate risk. And I got to speak to some of their economists. But there was no reaction. Uh, like, you know, they didn't take me seriously. Now they've totally defaulted. <laughs> they're gone. Well, they're, they're back in the government. But, uh, uh, I, but I, it seems like we have trouble managing real estate risk. So we've been trying to develop more user-friendly uh, and counterparty risk uh, immune <laughs> methods. Let's we'll see if we can do this. The other thing that's happening lately is bailouts. Uh, and, um, well, we've heard about Northern Rock, uh, but it's much more systematic than that. Uh, governments are coming in after the fact and offering money uh, that companies are never, were not entitled to and have no contractual right to. They're doing that because of systemic risks. Fear is that if they don't do it, it will create a crisis of confidence. Uh, this is a very difficult situation because it's also generating itself a sense of unfairness. If you bail out people who are irresponsible, uh, doesn't that harm the other people who were responsible, who are taxpayers? Uh, and that is an issue. Uh, but in my book, I say that we still need to do a lot of these bailouts. Uh, everyone has to know that no financial contract is inviolable 
and ultimately we do have a civil society that protects people. And uh, uh, we have to avoid, however, as much as possible, making these bailouts. We have to do it now because the system is seizing up and banks are not making loans. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a problem. Uh, but I think that the next thing to do is to move to some long-run solutions. And I'll, I'll just give three major areas with an example in each of what I said in the book should be actually high on our agenda at this time. I don't think it's high on many people's agenda. So the first of the three is that we need a better information infrastructure. Uh, and I'm hopeful that if we have a better information structure, we'll have fewer bubbles and just just people doing better management of their risks, which will improve everyone's welfare. The first one that I have is comprehensive financial advice. Uh, I think we should take this occasion to try to make sure that people are getting financial advice. Uh, now, most people don't get it, except from salespeople. Uh, wealthy people get financial advisors. Low-income people don't. Uh, and this is a fundamental problem. And it's part of the problem that caused this crisis, that um, uh, they may be operating under great inexperience and lack of knowledge. Uh, when you buy a house, who do you get advice from? Well, typically, it's from a real estate broker. This real estate broker has an incentive to sell you a house and doesn't have an incentive to tell you that maybe you don't need a house now. Uh, it's a little bit like, uh, imagine that the medical system were done differently and the government didn't subsidize it, so you couldn't afford to go to a doctor. Uh, but there are these various salespeople out there <laughs> selling drugs, okay? And you have to go to them because there's no, you can't afford the doctors. Um, and so you go to a salesperson at a drug company, and this person sells you only their products, okay? And won't tell you if you have diabetes, and they don't have a diabetes drug, he'll sell you something that they have a drug for. That would be terrible. But that is the system we have in, uh, in finance. Uh, so I think we just have to subsidize financial advice, just as we subsidize medical advice. And it's not, it, it is as important. Uh, people's lives can be uh, really damaged by bad financial advice. Now, I don't know if these people would have stopped the bubble, but I think they would have helped. Very simple advice like, do you really need such a big house and do you really think you can make these payments? Let's figure it out. You know, how, much, how much are you going to have to pay? And what if interest rates go up on you? People don't know how to figure these things out themselves. And I think they would have been more prudent if they had help. Uh, secondly, uh, we need to expand financial markets to cover more risks. This crisis was caused by a failure to manage real estate risk. Now, I'm talking in the UK today, which has the most sophisticated real estate risk management products in the world because the UK has, um, in fact, it was the first attempt at a futures market for single-family homes was in the UK. And also now there's an expanding derivatives market for commercial real estate that's reached uh, over uh, 12 billion pounds, I think, last time I heard. But uh, outside of the UK and a little bit in the US, there are no such markets. And even in the UK, they're not very successful yet, not very big. We created a futures market for single-family homes in Chicago uh, for 10 U.S. cities using the Standard & Poor Case-Shiller Indices. This is man managed by the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And these are the predicted price changes in the futures markets there. Uh, so right now they're predicting about a 15% price decline in the typical U.S. city going out uh, over the next two years. Uh, and this is uh, West Coast uh, cities. Los Angeles is the worst. They're predicting a 
about a 20% price decline going out over two years. Now, I've looked at the spread betting markets in the UK, and it's no better here. I don't know the exact number, but there are predictions of declines in home prices here as well going on for years. This is the part of the problem that we have. How can you do business? How can you buy and invest in real estate if it's expected to go down? How can a bank or a financial institution that has exposure to real estate risk resolve the problem when it's going to keep getting worse for two more years? What people really should have done is they should have had risk management institutions that would allow them to see what the future is according to the markets and also to take hedging positions in it. If builders had known about these markets in the, in the past, year, recent years, and had taken it into account, they probably wouldn't, I'm sure they wouldn't have built so many houses because the market is predicting a decline. And if they wanted to hedge themselves against the decline, they can see that they're only, uh, they're only able to hedge their, this is already locked in. You would be locking in these declines. So the final thing that I wanted to say is that I think we need better uh, long-run uh, retail products. And I'm going to talk about continuous workout manage mortgages. It's a term that I coined in this book. Um, so um, what we really need are mortgage contracts that are designed to manage the risk of the mortgage, uh, the borrower in a, in a, who buys a house. What I would like to see is mortgages that, well, remember what a workout is. If you can't pay, you've borrowed to buy a house, you can't pay, you're starting to miss payments. Uh, you go to the bank uh, that issued you the mortgage and say, I can't pay. Then they may say, okay, you're out of the house, <laughs> goodbye. Uh, but often, though, it's not in their interest to let you default because it costs them money, too, legal costs and other things. So they'll sometimes say, all right, we'll give you a little break on your payments. That's called a workout. Right now, people generally agree that workouts are a good thing, and the government is trying to subsidize them. But they're doing it after the fact. Why didn't we plan for this? And why do we let it build, the problem build, until, um, until it gets so severe that people are in desperate situations? So I'd like to see a mortgage contract that adjusts to economic events as they happen. You don't have to wait until you can't make a payment. Your payment would automatically go down in a bad economic situation. Uh, and the, uh, and the uh, mortgage would then uh, uh, respond month to month. I, in this kind of situation, nobody would even, I don't think people would even be aware of a problem. Uh, they would just find that there's always enough left in their paycheck if it was automatic withdrawal for their mortgage that they can meet expenses and they would never know that anything happened. So I think mortgage payments should be adjusted downward and home prices fall. Uh, and moreover, uh, when also other economic conditions get worse. Let's think about what you have in the UK. You have uh, mortgages which tend to be long-term but have uh, adjustable rates. So they're throwing on the homeowner risk of interest rate movements. Uh, they're not protecting the homeowner against anything. Uh, and why is that? Well, I think it's just uh, our, the mortgage institution needs to be developed better. So uh, the conclusion, and I was open for questions, the conclusion is that we should be using this opportunity to rethink how we do risk management. And we, are, and we should be thinking long-term now. It's only at times of crisis. The silver lining at a time of crisis like this is it's a time when we um, think more broadly about how things work. We see the problem very clearly. 
I found it very hard to talk to Fannie Mae people in 2003. I recently went back there, and they're now all government employees, <laughs> suddenly. And I found them in a different, very different spirit. But of course, it's too late. But at least we can improve the situation. So I think this should be a time for soul searching about our financial institutions. And the, the real attitude that we should take is let's make them work for people. Let's go back to the financial principles and let's take account of behavioral finance as well, knowing that people will make all kinds of mistakes. We have to human engineer them for real people and consider their real risks. And consider that we live in a more informationally rich age. We have computers now. We don't have to rely on standard contract. We can make them adjust automatically to individual circumstances. So let's move to a better and more risk-managed uh, economy. Thank you very much. We've got some time for uh, questions, and I'm going to go straight to the floor. And yeah, I see a hand. Ian, uh, can you wait the microphone? Yeah. Sorry, Stuart in green. Quick. <laughs> Professor Schiller, I, I'm a graduate of the school of 55 years ago when Keynes was at his height. And as I remember, the issue then was that the propensity to consume was too low and the propensity to save was too high. And the argument for public works and increasing expenditure was you increase the propensity to consume. We now live in a world in which the saving ratio is virtually zero. And the saving element is provided by the savings of the Arabs and the Chinese. In other words, international confidence is the only thing that ensures that we have anything to invest at all. Do you think the Keynesian solution as propounded is correct under these circumstances? Uh, well, I know the. Uh, I didn't know what the UK saving rate is, but in, uh, I didn't think it was approaching zero, zero in the last uh, couple of years. <laughs> uh, Slightly above the US, but very similar. You, do, you said it was the same as the UK, is the same yeah. as the US. It is but, but, in this yeah. case, yes. Uh, and so, uh, I think Keynes was oversimplifying his consumption function, and that part of what is driving the very low savings rate is the same bubble phenomenon, which I think dominates so much of what's happened. So people are looking at the possibility of saving, and they're thinking, well, I couldn't really save very much out of my income, nothing compared to what my house is going up. My house is going up at 30,000 pounds a year or something like that, and uh, uh, it, it gives them a sense of complacency. Also, the stock market. Uh, people uh, imagine that their stock market wealth is going, they, they all feel they're going to be millionaires, and in fact, uh, what they don't realize is that even though your home price is going up, it's still the same house. It's just a market price. And so it can't be that we're all getting rich. We can't all sell these homes and get a huge sum of money. And what happens eventually is people try to do that and, and uh, the market corrects. So I think Keynes, I, I, I'm uh, a huge admirer of Keynes. The, my book with George Akerlof, that's Animal Spirits, is really... Uh, very much, we talk about Keynes a lot in it. But we think that maybe the wrong things have been emphasized by, about him. That what Keynes, Keynes' general description of the role of animal spirits in the economy is fundamental. But uh, it's not easily amenable to econometrics. 
And so people have focused instead on some of the more mechanical parts of his theory. Uh, and, and, and sometimes the analysis uh, omits uh, important. Uh, the, the Keynesian models that have been developed, I think, are still useful for forecasting. But they may miss big events like this. Uh, they didn't predict this debacle, for example. Yeah, down at the uh, front row, yeah. Thank you very much for your um, talk. It's one of the things you said is, is the importance of the psychological factors. And one of the most difficult things for human beings to do is to believe unpleasant facts staring at them in the face. Now, you said this was nobody predicted this. But I was getting, you know, I'm a pure amateur investor, that um, there were big problems two years ago. And uh, talking to friends, we came to the conclusion it was necessary to sell every investment, move everything to cash, which I did about 18 months ago. And, you, you know, I'm, I'm a pure amateur. I don't claim to be a financial genius. But to me, it was just obvious there were huge problems. And you were talking about um, uh, um, financial advice. You know, I watch a lot of Bloomberg television. And you listen to these guys. And you want, do they really know any more than anyone in this room? You know, six weeks ago, two or three months ago, RBS, great stock, buy at 150p. It's not going to go lower. You know, all this stuff. And you think, to these people, you know, what they lack is, is common sense. I remember seeing an article... December 1999, millennium, predictions for the, the de decade, the Dow Jones will be at 40,000 by 2008. And this is supposed right. to be a respected financial advisor. Um, just one other thing. On the 29 crash, because Dow collapsed by 87% of its peak value, is that really going to happen again, in your view? <laughs> uh, I remember when I was going to the World Economic Forum, uh, and I, the taxi driver was taking me to the airport in New York, and I was listening to him. I thought he knew a lot more than most people I met at the forum. <laughs> I thought I was going to give him my ticket and say, "You go." <laughs> I, I talked about this in my New York Times article that uh, uh, recently. That uh, taxi drivers seem to—I've had them tell me these stories. I, they seem to know what's going on, and. I know the experience of being on a TV news show, and they throw some question at you, and you, you have this impulse to answer in a professional manner. And so that means omitting the obvious. You can't, this is part of groupthink. This is what the psychologists, Irving Janis wrote a wonderful book about groupthink, and that people try to justify, you have to justify what you say in professional terms. And so you stay away from, I know that economists, my economist friends were much more likely to talk about bubbles at coffee after a seminar, but they wouldn't bring it up during the seminar because it's not, not respectable. Um, so as for uh, whether, uh, yeah, it was very interesting to me that in the year 1999 or, or 2000, three books came out. One was entitled Dow 36,000, uh, one was entitled Dow 40,000, and one was entitled Dow 100,000. And I know how that happened because I talked to publishers. 
publishers commission books. And they just knew that a book with a title like Dow 36,000 would be a bestseller. And so they got someone to write it. That's how things happen. Incidentally, Dow 36,000 by Glassman and Hassett did say it would hit 36,000 by 2008. And I had a debate with Kevin Hassett. He owes me a dinner now. <laughs> but I'm not going to enforce him. <laughs> uh, woman on the front row. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm an economic historian, and I've studied the 1873, the 1929 crash, and this crash. And in each case, it was after, uh, in 18th century, 1873, it was two years after uh, Germany and Japan went on to the uh, gold standard. And in 1929, uh, the, country, uh, the countries were all returning to the gold standard. And I'd like to know how far you think the capital flows associated with the arrival of the euro were responsible for the American subprime crisis. Oh, that's <laughs> Uh, that's not a common theory, the arrival of the euro. <laughs> but if you look at it, it's worth, it's worth investigating. Um, um, yes, it is, because as a matter of fact, you had uh, almost had a crisis the minute it arrived, and now we've had all these derivatives and wonderful things which have managed to, and the housing um, market, keep the world economy going. And you have the capital flows which went from Europe when because nobody trusted the euro yeah. and now they're now they've returned again because the Europe put its interest rates up again um, uh, well anyway you're uh, you're asking some interesting and I have to think about interesting uh, the 1873 uh, crisis is uh, I just was re recently reading Walter Badgett he wrote a book called Lombard Street in 1873, right at the peak, just before that crisis. Uh, I discovered it's on the web. It, it's all post-copyright. It's fun to read. Uh, but what I was reading, in his account of that cycle, uh, he was emphasizing the speculative contagion of the time. That, uh, 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 Sorry. Yeah. yeah. There, there, there may be other aspects. Uh, and um, the gold standard efforts to defend the gold standard were definitely part of the 19th of the depression phenomenon. And uh, this is something that well, Ben Bernanke is one of the scholars who, in his book Essays on the Great Depression, he brings that up. And the end of the depression seemed to come when countries went off the gold standard. Uh, and this is, uh, uh, I, I accept, as part of the story. Uh, yeah, uh, man in a white shirt, sort of. Is it white? Sort of off-white. <laughs> it was white once, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. Um, hello. I wanted to ask the ideas behind securitization. Just shout a bit.
Well, I think securitization of mortgages is a good thing. We made mistakes. First of all, there was an agency problem that we didn't hold issuers of mortgages sufficiently responsible for issuing bad mortgages. And we can correct that. We can leave some of the responsibility with them. Uh, secondly, there was a problem with the bond raters that, that raided the mortgage securities and told people that they were AAA and later defaulted. This, I think, again, was a mistake that had to do with the bubble, that there was general complacency about real estate prices. And I'm trying to picture how could some mortgage uh, securities raider have given a low rating to a uh, mortgage security at that time. Imagine that you took a job at uh, Moody's and were writing uh, uh, ratings, and you looked at the uh, uh, securitized uh, uh, mortgage uh, proposal that was given to you, and you said, wait a minute, everyone else is giving AAA to this, but there could be another housing crisis like the 1930s, and then these would all go bust. But in reality, this is groupthink in a sort, but you really f have tremendous pressures not to do that. You, you go to your boss and say, I think the Great Depression could happen again, so I want to give a B rating to this. <laughs> and, and you're not going to get very far with that. When, when the group think is that this is not a problem, we're comfortable with this risk. And so eventually you go back to your desk and say, well, all right, it's not my problem. This is just my personal feeling. It's generally accepted that this deserves a AAA rating. So I, I guess that's all right. Th that's what happened. But it's all part of the bubble again, I think. Uh, in blue, uh, directly in front. Yep. Fourth row, that's it. Guy in a blue sweater. Neil Barton. In the 1980s and 1990s, I was responsible for the technology research in Merrill Lynch, Europe. I uh, visited major institutions twice a year, face to face. In 1998, I downgraded the five-year forecast on the view that things were being brought forward by the um, irrational exuberance argument that, that you put forward. Each mm -hmm. um, of my clients spent their allotted one hour meeting shouting at me. They were not... In they were professional investors. Oh, you're not talking about the people you were rating, the people that were you were trying to protect. I, w I was trying to protect, yes. And they were professional investors, very knowledgeable about technology, all over the world. Um, but they were not interested in the their bonus from their portfolio performance. Um, and I left in just before you published your wonderful Irrational Exuberance book, um, because nobody was interested, including my own bosses, uh, in what I was saying. Um, and other people within Merrill Lynch were forced out who had similar views. Um, now, your, uh, your first recommendation, better information, for instance, on the housing market, professional investors in technology had very good information, but the group think over, overrode that. So why would better information on the housing market uh, work in this case? Thanks. Well, I have to admit, I don't have a perfect cure for uh, human, uh, basic human problems. Uh, <laughs> these, uh, I mean, what you say sounds absolutely right, that 
lots of people in different circumstances were faced with the idea that I could just shut down. Basically, you know, I remember I was, um, um, what was it? Um, uh, it, it happened in various cases where I talked to people who uh, were involved in exactly that kind of decision. Uh, I could say, I don't believe this, everyone's taking too many risks here, but, if, but then I'm just not part of the picture anymore. And uh, what do I do with my career? I can wait five or ten years. I could drop out and come back. But that doesn't even seem realistic. If I drop out for five or ten years, it won't be me. that come, It'll be somebody else. And so... Uh, People would admit that to me over drinks afterwards. And, uh, um, part, of the, the, part of this thing is an agency problem that, uh, that maybe we, uh, we can correct somewhat. That uh, ultimately, uh, the financial success of the, our economy depends on people who show personal integrity. Uh, and I was recently reading for inspiration. Uh, the uh, 1934 autobiography of John Moody, who is the founder of Moody's Investment Services. And after he retired, he wrote a book about his own life. Uh, and I, I, it confirmed for me what I thought. Uh, what he said in the book was, uh, people told me, what he did in, in around 1900, he set up Moody's, and what they did is they just published all sorts of information about every bond security out there, and they gave these ratings. But uh, he said, friends told me, don't do that. You're just a publisher. Uh, if you do that, you're never going to get rich doing that. And they said, you have all this information. Keep it secret and, and start making deals that based on this info. But then he said, I just couldn't do it. He said, it just excited me more to get out and, uh, and tell the world the truth. And he was that kind of person. And I also was impressed in his biography that he was very plain-speaking guy. One thing he said in the book is that he would never accept money for a rating because that obviously biases my judgment. And so he died uh, uh, something like 50 years ago. The bond rating agencies didn't accept money for many years, but they started accepting it, I think around 1970. So they let... Uh, I, I think that we have to somehow re ultimately rely on people to take stands like that that are not personally rewarding. And we do have such people. We have to think about how to, how to keep our institutions uh, alive with such people. Uh, second row from the back, um, black sweater, jacket, there you go. Is it a good idea for governments to buy distressed assets to try and uh, slow down the correction in prices? Well, um, this is one of the things that they have been doing. Although, actually, the U.S. Uh, Paulson went to the U.S. Congress with a proposal to do that, um, but he's been pulling back from that. Uh, I find it difficult to know. It seems to me that it, it would help. There's a model of the Japanese banks that held distressed loans for a long time. Uh, it's, uh, and they didn't have a, they were illiquid and they couldn't, uh, uh, you want to create, the idea was to create a liquid market for these things so that everyone would know what they're worth. It sounds sensible, and it isn't necessarily going to be costly to the government. If they do a good job of this and they, uh, they don't pay too much for them, maybe it will work out. It's one of those great unknowns, though, because I, I don't know how I can come up with an authoritative answer. Uh, obviously, Paulson has been vacillating on this. Uh, I, I find it, uh, it difficult to, to say.
Hello, I wonder whether you could expand on this financial stimulus, particularly from uh, our Chancellor, and is there a parallel to the expectation augmented Phillips curve here, where we find that the, the graph actually changes when people understand what might happen? And you're talking in terms of the proposal to raise taxes in the future. Uh, yeah, I think the, the expectations augmented Phillips curve is if we, the Phillips curve uh, wasn't he here at LSE? Or, yeah, another LSE <laughs> professor uh, uh, who proposed there was a relation between inflation and unemployment. Uh, and he had a nice chart which he published in the 1950s for UK uh, inflation and unemployment. It was a nice negative relation. But then that curve started shifting up as inflation started to rise. And so people said you have to augment the Phillips curve to take account of expectations. So I think it's, it is an interesting parallel that uh, uh, if, if we announce tax increases in the future, uh, that, that seems to me, it, well, it's interesting what kind of effect it might be. People might try to earn income this year and, and uh, take a vacation in the future. We can shift income forward. So maybe it would have, a, I, I haven't thought it all through, maybe it would have a stimulative effect in the short run, which is what he wants. Yeah, uh, in the middle here. Hi, uh, Gerard Derricks, the Department of Geography. Um, the title of today's lecture is The Subprime Crisis. I was uh, a bit surprised you didn't uh, mention uh, the role of um, like uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and uh, con Congress, um, uh, not necessarily forcing them, but uh, uh, encouraging them to loosen their lending standards that happened right. in the last uh, eight, eight, ten years or so. Right. And uh, also on a related note, uh, you mentioned um, how the, the we, sh we should uh, think that we should uh, subsidize uh, uh, financial planning and market information. I mean, uh, you have to remember that there's in also two sides to every transaction. There's also the lender in every case. If, if the lender, I mean, the, the lender has also an incentive to make sure that they're not uh, lending money to someone who can't pay it back at the same time. I mean, if, if there's someone, let's say the government that's uh, encouraging that in a way they shouldn't, you might come up with a problem, but I don't like to make a comment on that, too. Thank you very much. Yeah. First of all, um, the uh, director of housing and urban development, Andrew Cuomo, in the early 1990s, directed Fannie and Freddie to make more loans to underserved markets, that meant minority, um, typically minority markets. And this was because I think there was a movement to, uh, there was a sense that minorities in the U.S. were not participating in the boom and were not the, uh, they were not getting rich like everyone else. I remember that Martin Luther King III, that's the son of uh, the famous Martin Luther King, wrote an editorial saying that minorities are not getting in on this boom. Uh, and so it became impossible politically for uh, the uh, Fannie and Freddie to resist this. And so they did start lowering their lending standards. I don't know how big a factor that was. It was, it was a factor. Um, and... Um, the other, I'm sorry, the, your second question was about, uh, I can understand my note. Well, uh, one 
problem, even so, lenders, you're right, don't want to lend if they think that you're going to default. But they don't care necessarily about your peace of mind <laughs> or the quality of your life. Moreover, they don't have any long-term relation with you except as a lender. They tend to give advice that's very narrow and specific. Where instead of suggesting that maybe you should be doing something else, uh, what uh, I would like to see is the sponsorship of fee-only advisors so that someone who would sign a statement saying that I'm going to charge you an hourly fee and I will take no commissions for anything that I, I sell to you. Moreover, I'm a general advisor. I'll advise, uh, you, you would be trained and maybe I think you yeah, should be licensed for that. So. Uh, so many people, uh, any decision on, say, buying a house is part of a much bigger picture of a lifetime uh, economic strategy. Uh, and a real problem that we have is we just don't have somebody who helps people make the broad decisions. Uh, and and I, I, I think it would it'd be very different than what a lender does to help you. We'll take one last question, which is the guy in the hoodie next to the man in the off-white shirt. <coughs> Professor Schiller, thanks for your speech. You, know, you, you mentioned times in your speech that uh, it is, uh, you, me you mentioned many times the cycle effect. So my question is whether it is the cycle effect in real economy leads to the financial crisis or the financial crisis help to form the cycle in economy. <laughs> Well, that's an easy one. I think everything feeds back both ways in economics. So, uh, I, I'm not. I didn't use. Did I use the word cycle? Uh, I, I've been trained to use that. Be re, re, reluctant to use that word uh, because uh, we used to talk about business cycles, uh, and then people started to test uh, using spectral analysis for the significance of these cycles. And uh, the general conclusion was they're not rigidly cyclical. At least you can't prove that they are rigidly cyclical. But I think that there is some sense of a possible cycle. And I'm mentioning uh, how complacency sets in over years. So we had the Great Depression. It took a long time before we got really complacent about it and thought it really couldn't happen again. And that's when something, at least a little bit like it, happens again. Thank you. Um, you've been kind enough, discreet enough not to mention um, that your book is outside, <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, I can I can do that, uh, and that you're going to stay and sign a few copies. Okay. Yep. Uh, so thank you all for coming, and thank you very much for taking time. In <laughs>